The Serial Entrepreneur, brought to you by Startups Magazine. A podcast bringing you leading businesses and founders who have a story to tell and explain some of their biggest challenges. Try not to be too hard on yourself. Like, I've met so many founders who are like, you know, I should have done this, and then the pandemic happened, and I didn't do this. And, and you spend so much time, like, second-guessing yourself when really mistakes will happen. Like, we're human. It really does improve over time, and I think sometimes when you're starting out, you kind of almost expect yourself to have, you know, super high standards from the start. You know, you want to do your best at the start, absolutely, but you're never going to be perfect. Plus, share their biggest secret, their favourite breakfast cereals. My favourite cereal is an Australian cereal called Nutrigrain. Rice Krispies. It's pretty boring. Weetabix. I have a clear winner. It is uh, Cocoa Pops. Hello and welcome back to the Serial Entrepreneur podcast brought to you as always by Startups Magazine. Today I'm super excited to bring you my guest in the form of Nick Muta, CEO and founder of Moot. Nick, how are you today? Very good, thank you Anna. As I just mentioned, a little bit tired but I think it goes with the course, right? (laughs) As an entrepreneur, are you ever not tired? I think there's physically tired and tired of what you're doing. I'm never tired of what I'm doing. I'm always physically tired. (laughs) (laughs) To be honest, I think that's more of a grown-up thing because I'm starting to feel like that at the moment. (laughs) I'm like, this life is not for me. (laughs) Yeah, I think it's just old age. Well, thank you so much for obviously agreeing to be on this podcast. I know you have quite a an exciting, extraordinary journey. So I'm excited to kind of probe you and question you on all of that and learn how you've kind of got to where you are today. But before we delve into the nitty gritty questions, my most important question for you today is the first one, as it is the Serial Entrepreneur Podcast, what is your favourite breakfast cereal and why? God, this is going to make me sound infantile. I think that it's got to be Crave, you know, the chocolate square ones. I love those little Moorish things. They're awful for you and so bad, but really good. I think that's the first on this podcast. I don't think anyone's actually said Crave, and that is a great choice of cereal. Like you say, it does remind me of my sugary childhood. Yeah. My alternative one, which is slightly healthier, is one called Apricot Wheats, which most people don't know of. They're amazing. They're like a little shreddy type, you know, like the mini shreddies type thing, but with like a little bit of dried apricot in amazing nice after i'll have to try that one out do you have cereal often every day are you a cereal man i'm not actually no maybe once a week if that more of a porridge man i think yeah i definitely am or an overnight oats girl so uh yeah but it's all trendy now isn't it so now we know all about your breakfast preference and how often you have your cereal as I briefly said at the beginning, you have created a number of businesses, a number of successful businesses. It's quite an incredible story. So start me from the beginning. Tell me a little bit about your background. I believe you studied law and you nearly had a soccer career. So how did you then kind of come to starting your first business? So how many hours have we got? So it's quite long. So yeah, I'd, you're correct. I spent most of my youth as a soccer player, football player, from kind of, well, played from a very young age, obviously, but played professionally at academy and whatnot level from about eight, nine years old. And all the way through to 18, classic scenario, had a car crash, couldn't play anymore. So I remember being in hospital, unable to walk and whatnot, and uh, 
my dad turned around to me and said, you know, you can't play professionally anymore. You need to go to university. I was like, oh, okay. And long story short, I ended up joining university quite late in a wheelchair doing law. Oh my gosh, that's mental. So if you hadn't have had this accident, would you never have gone to university? Is it, is there still a chance that you'd have still been playing professional football right now? Yeah, it, I think looking back, my life was just mapped out for me. It was, you are going to be a footballer, whether you like it or not. I think I was kind of living my dad's dreams vicariously. I was never, looking back, I was never incredibly passionate about football. I'm, I'm still not today. So I wasn't hugely disheartened when I couldn't play anymore, which I know would shock a lot of people, but um, I just weren't that bothered. I was, I was always the kid who was in his bedroom building computers and trying to build the first iteration of websites on 56k dial-up modems. So I wasn't your typical football player. I just ended up oddly being good at it. <laughs> so many um, young men and women will be listening to this and they'll be so jealous because it's normally the other way around, isn't it? Normally these these kids come through and they're so passionate about playing and they're just not good enough. But you were the, you were the other way around. You were the anomaly. Yeah, I'd, I'd actually say, I mean, we could talk about this for hours, but the best players I ever played with were the ones who didn't actually care the most and never went on to make it. The ones who went on to make it were never the best players I played with. They were just the ones that wanted it the most. Yeah, that's really interesting. I guess it's, you can apply that to different things in life, can't you? But um, yeah, sorry, I'm getting very carried away now with your uh, footballing path. So yeah, you were studying law. Then tell me how this led to uh, your fis- your first business. Yeah, so I did a law degree and I was just always interested in working and earning money. And I was doing a lot of stuff uh, online whilst I was at university. And I remember I started my first job day after my last exam. So I never even had my results and was doing IT consultancy sales, did really well at that and kind of went on doing that for two years and and very good money and burnt myself out, typical sales job and oddly got offered to move out to the States and moved out to Los Angeles to work for the MLS, which is Major League Soccer, their version of the Premier League and worked out there for a couple of years and it was when I was out there that I saw the emergence of a new form of advertising technology. And I had to come back to the UK. They kicked me out because of visa reasons. And I think I always just had issues with authority. I didn't like working with other people. I didn't like being told what to do. So I saw it as my opportunity to actually do my own thing and start my first business, which was in the form of a digital agency to start. And I had no money. Like I, I was a typical kind of young 20-year-old lad, right? I was What I was earning, I was spending and... I was going out on the weekend still and working hard in the week. You know, I wasn't saving or doing that kind of sensible stuff. So I started my first agency with nothing and uh, ended up kind of launching Lad Bible, which was an incredible story, uh, launching the Hook Groups, uh, what's known as their ingenuity proposition, and sold that business very quickly. And then it gave me the money to start what I really wanted to do, which was the advertising technology stuff. I was very naive. I thought, I'm going to start this advertising technology business in the UK, Europe, do it better than the guys in the US on a fraction of the money. And the naivety very quickly showed itself when I realized how expensive this technology was to build. And there's a reason these American companies had raised hundreds of millions of dollars to do it. But we did it. And the company was called Admedo, started it in 2013. 
very quickly ran out of money and had to raise external capital. And I'd never raised capital externally before. That was a whole new world, which now seems like most of my life. But uh, yeah, raised external capital and then grew that business across the UK, Europe, US over the space of six, seven years. It was an incredible journey. There was highs, there was lows. We had exciting times of winning incredible clients and working with amazing brands to losing our biggest client overnight because of Facebook changing the way they worked, having to make redundancies, having an angina attack in the middle of the office and collapsing through stress. Oh, yeah, it was a hell of a journey. I could go on for hours. Wow. I mean, it seems like so much has happened in such a short space of time. How did you kind of cope with all all this that was going on and obviously all the stress and yeah, everything that kind of happened as like a whirlwind? Yeah. I mean, when you look back at it, it seems crazy, isn't it? And you talk about this stuff, but I think you just, over time, I, I always refer to it as like getting calluses on the brain, which is where you go through so many highs and lows that you learn to like normalize yourself and not get too emotional because when you get so emotional with the highs and lows it can you know it sends you off um you can be crazy right (laughs) it can send you mad and it can send people into all sorts of states of stress and depression and and everything luckily i didn't have any of that i got stressed but i didn't go into any of the the too bad stuff yeah but you, you just have to deal with it and i think that now i have to buying selling and growing businesses for the last 10 years you kind of learn to normalize yourself to it all and be able to cope with it a little bit better and a lot of people view it as kind of that you're cold and that you're emotionless and things like that it's not it's just that you have to stay level-headed and you have to learn not to be emotional and just treat businesses as they are as numbers and figures and and product it's um yeah i mean i i feel like for you it's something that's well for for many people but you included it's become something that's come quite natural could you ever imagine yourself like as that young boy maybe back as the professional footballer and then maybe when you went to study ever starting your own business was that ever in your life plan i think always my my father was from a humble background and started his own business and and saw a level of success and I always knew that's what I wanted to do was to have my own company and yeah, to, to work for myself. So yeah, it was always what I wanted to do. I just didn't really have a plan until obviously I stopped playing football. And then I think there's probably some kind of weird narcissistic tendency, which was that I want to be more successful than my dad, you know? I, I feel like I really di- am diverging here. It's just so interesting. So let me now move on because we've we've already scratched the surface really. And of course, now you focus more on Moot, which I guess is probably the main one that people may know you for, but also Olivia's two extremely successful businesses. Oliv- let's start with Olivia's because um, I feel like there's more questions that I have about Moot. But Olivia's is the luxury homeware industry business. First of all, how did you achieve such a, a successful business in this space because it seems like it is such a crowded space and everyone's kind of trying to break into it but you just came came and seemed to smash it out the park thank you that's that's incredibly nice of you to say so i'd stepped away from admedo and kind of done a, a couple of exits there and brought in a new ceo who's far more competent than me so i was my time was free and i, I purchased a house at north 
and I wanted to kit it out with, you know, fashionable homeware that wasn't the kind of IKEA made.com cheap stuff. It was just a little bit, you know, um, a little bit, a little bit more affluent and a little bit more kind of aspirational, but without kind of breaking the bank. And I was just really, when I looked around, I just thought, God, the options are really bad. And I spoke to people and said, where would you go for this product? And they just all looked to me a little bit blank. And I found a couple of businesses online. And obviously I'd spent my whole career driving sales online for other people. It's all I've ever done. So when I saw that there was this product available, but it wasn't available to the masses and no one had done it well, I just saw an opportunity to, to do something about it. And I don't think there was any huge grand plan to start with. It's like, let's just see if there's something in this. But I, I wanted to be a bit awkward where I didn't want to buy stock up front. So most businesses, the reason that they, they have such challenges is they have to pay for all of this stock up front. They have to warehouse it and then they have to try and sell it and make a good margin on it. I didn't want to do that because it just wasn't very capital efficient. So I built a piece of technology which allowed me to leverage other people's stock levels as my own and only actually purchase the product once I'd already sold it. So I created a positive working capital cycle, which had never been done before. You know, it was unheard of in the industry because it's in, it was relatively impossible to do with the right technology and the suppliers don't like to work in that way. So when I asked them to work like that, they all told me to get lost. There was only one that I convinced. And I was quite, quite bullshit with it. I turned around to them and said, if you allow me to do this, I will be your biggest customer within 12 months. And one of them miraculously believed me and allowed me to do it. So we ended up launching Olivia's in September 2019. And because we had created this positive working capital cycle and my whole career was knowing how to generate sales online, the marrying of the two just created this great recipe for success. And within six months, we ended up buying our biggest competitor. We launched our third brand within 12 months and we were doing over 20 million in revenue in our first year which was crazy. And we had this awful period and thing that happened called COVID within, within like six, seven months of starting. And this is, there's a few common misconceptions with COVID. People think, oh, it, it changed the way that people shopped. It didn't. It just accelerated a shift that was already happening. People were already starting to buy things online. I mean, look at Cinch and um, Kazoo and things like that, where people are now buying their cars online without seeing them. You would never have done that 10 years ago. People are buying far more high price ticket items online now and having that trust level than they did before. So I think all of those things came together. But what COVID did, which was hugely inhibitive to the business, is growth, was the lack of stock. So throughout the whole of COVID, although we had probably increased demand because people were at home, we had 50% of our best sellers always out of stock at one point. So we missed out on huge amounts of revenue. So it's very much mitigated the whole COVID thing. So yes, you can say there was increased demand, but the supply was massively reduced. So actually the revenues probably normalized themselves, And that kind of showed because when we started to come out of COVID, there was this fear of God, what's the world going to be like online? You know, are sales going to drop off? And we're seeing tons of businesses now disappearing and closing because of it. Because so many started during COVID, but we actually continued to grow since everything opened back up and our repeat customer rate and things like that across our homeware brands we've got three are better than ever so yeah i could tell you all sorts about it you know the story but that that's kind of the it in a nutshell so that business continues to grow and is a you know it's been awarded fastest growing homeware business in the uk and we we want to get that to 100 million business very very quickly 
That's incredible. Like I say, I have read so many kind of stories and articles about how well Olivia's been doing. So that's why I was like so impressed with it. And I'm glad you mentioned the whole COVID thing also because did it, was it also, you know, lockdown? I know the supply issue you said, and it, it was kind of like swings and roundabouts, but everyone seemed to be wanting to do their house up. So was having a homeware brand at that time, the one of the best times for, for this sort of business? Listen, if you talk about verticals that were good to be in, it was probably one of them, a bit like home gym equipment and things like that, because people are at home. But as I say, that I think the proof's in the pudding that when COVID started to ease, started to ease, we didn't see a drop off. We continued to grow. So it shows that it wasn't just all of this increased demand. There was actually a lot of substance behind the brand. And we still got massive issues with supply, as most people do still. Yeah, definitely. And so Moot, Moot is the newest of your businesses and rapidly growing. I mean, to say you started what your first business nine years ago and yeah, we're on well, it's not even number three. Is it number three? Because there's like little different parts of each one. and Yeah, I mean, I've bought and sold different businesses over my time and, and grown them from inception. But yeah, I mean, Moot's become the third kind of um, large venture that uh, I've embarked on. So what happened was when we were growing the homeware brands, we launched them on Shopify, as most people do. But what we realized is that with our fast growth, we, we very quickly were outgrowing the capabilities of Shopify and the similar tools like WooCommerce and you know similar platforms at that CMS level. The tools like Shopify are incredible. They're amazing. The businesses are in, in you know, they've done an incredible job and they service a huge purpose. Um, and you can start a website for less than a gym membership, you know, an e-commerce store. But as I say, you very quickly outgrow its, your, outgrow its capabilities once you start to do significant volumes and have complexities around products. You're looking for advanced reporting. The site ends up going very slow because you use all of these apps, which then drag it down, creates bad customer experiences. It's just not built for you know fast uh, growth brands that have scaled. So that's why um, we hit this point of like, right, where do we go? And we looked at the options and there was... There's kind of THG Ingenuity, which was this old monolithic piece of technology, very clunky and very expensive, and that just didn't cut it for us. There's a couple of solutions out of America, which were looking at headless, but they were doing just parts of it. So I, was like, I think the typical kind of me here, where it's like, let's just build our own. And because I'd built technology before with Admedo, I knew how to do it, and you know, I was very technically minded. So got in touch with a guy who had created a very successful e-commerce technology company historically and publicly listed it and exited it. And he saw the same opportunity as me, so joined forces. And now a year on, we've got this platform called Moot, which is built for people that have outgrown their Shopify solution. It's an advanced e-commerce platform. And we work with clients like Timberland, Misguided, Pulse Roll, House Beautiful, you know, in incredible brands. And again, that business has just grown because there's such a need for this type of technology and more e-com brands are growing faster than ever. The total addressable market's increasing. So we've really created a, a great solution at a, a perfect time when the need is greater than ever. Yeah. As with kind of all your businesses, the story seems to be there's a problem that you needed a solution for kind of on a personal level. So you just created a business to kind of fix that problem, which I love. I always think the best businesses are made when they're, it's creating a proper problem and it's not just like I want to create business and you kind of banishing an idea out of nothing. 
but that's that's really important because we when we talk as moot to clients we can resonate with them we we've experienced their exact problems they're having with internationalization whatever it may be all of these different things the brands think they're unique they're all got exactly the same problem and we've lived and breathed them ourselves and we create a product to solve it so I think they really kind of like that we have been through that experience ourselves and understand it. We're not just a software provider. Um, we're actually people that have sat in, you know, in their boots or on their chair, whatever you, terminology you want to use, right? So, yeah, I think that's why it does so well. Definitely. And I think you mentioned at the beginning, you know, you've always kind of been into tech and you've got like a tech, technical minded. So building an, a business in e-commerce was that kind of like your passion you know was it more like exciting than maybe some of the other businesses you've grown because you've had like that technology background I think my mind has always been is how do I automate and simplify things with the use of technology so I think that's kind of the core principle of of how my my mind works I think certainly working with D2C e-com brands is cooler than selling, building, advertising technology. So that it's really interesting. It's great to go into all these different brands and see how they work and the different products. It's really exciting. I love that, like meeting all of these different fast growth brands and hearing their story and seeing them grow. And the variety of products and verticals we work in is crazy. Everything from massage guns to sofas to makeup you know it's vertical agnostic so um yeah it's really interesting i i probably never enjoyed my work so much as i do now i'm i'm still learning every day meeting new brands every day yeah it's just a great time to be in e-commerce it's quite funny actually i sat at a one of these kind of networking dinners which i don't typically like um and it's a networking dinner for e-com e-commerce brand owners and everyone was moaning. They were moaning about Brexit. They were moaning about COVID. And they're all kind of doom and gloom. And at the end of it, I went, listen, guys, everyone's moaning here. But let's just remember, there is no better time in the history of man to have a business in e-commerce. There is no better time. And they were like, oh, actually, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's so true. And it's just going to keep going in that direction, isn't it? One of my questions to you was going to be, how important do you think technology is in today's world and especially relating that to e-commerce? Like, what does the power of e-commerce hold right now? I think it's a very difficult, although I just said, you know, I'm contradicting myself a little bit here, that there's no better time to be in e-commerce. There's also, you have to be, what COVID's done is accelerate that shift and you have to be far more sophisticated than you were five, six years ago. You can't just have a nice product and a brand and hope to, succeed you you just can't and what a lot of these brands do is they put product brand and marketing first and they completely forget about technology and they leave that to like last and then they hit growth and like oh no we're now really inhibited by technology and our infrastructure despite it being the entire backbone of our business and how we make our money they neglect it so yeah you certainly have to be a technology savvy business now and have the right systems in place in order to scale you know we we see some crazy stats of businesses that double their conversion rates by just changing some of their technology because they've created such a, a sluggish um, solution as they've grown but yeah you have to be technology first not so much technology first but you have to make it a very key part of your success in order to to grow these days if you neglect it you'll fail it's never been tougher for, to succeed in e-commerce at the same time. 
it's extremely competitive. I mean, we all know somebody who's starting an e-commerce brand. Everybody's done it. They all want this kind of laissez-faire lifestyle because they think they can work remotely and sell products online. And you get these YouTube videos of these guys about drop shipping and Shopify businesses and making a million pounds a day or a million dollars typically. And it's just not like that. It's just not true. Um, it's never been tougher. And the failure rate in e-commerce is incredibly high. I think I read in uh, Shopify stat that 92% of all Shopify stores that open close within the first six months. So that gives you a bit of an idea. Like the, the, six, the actual success rate of e-commerce brands is really low because it's hard. You can't, you can't grow a Gymshark today like Ben did 10 years ago. You can't use the same principles. It just doesn't work like that anymore. It, it's harder and harder to succeed. I mean, we're seeing a new, look at fast fashion. We are seeing a new fast fashion brand, two a day, minimum. There's hundreds of them being created, but they're, they're actually struggling, right? It's tough. I mean, just look at the margins of Boohoo and PLT and Misguided just had its troubles, right? It's a really tough space. Yeah, definitely. And it kind of shows even if you have made it and you have seen success, it, it's not guaranteed. Even some of the biggest brands can then kind of go through their struggles and their challenges themselves. You can't, sometimes success can be, you can be a victim of your own success that you get, so, you grow so quick and you add costs so fast that you can very quickly stumble over yourself. But although it's making it sound doom and gloom, yes, there's some challenges, but there's more successfully con brands now than ever. Yeah. Definitely. One of my questions again to you was going to be what have some of the biggest challenges with Moot been and how have you kind of overcome these? I guess we've just touched on this, but have there been in any in particular specifically with Moot that have been a real challenge for you? I think access to venture capital in the UK is far, far more difficult than competitors in the States. You know, we've got competitors in the States who are raising two, three hundred million dollars at crazy valuations when they've got no better tech or no more revenue than us. There's just so much dry powder, pardon me, over there in terms of capital to raise and the total addressable market is so big. So it is difficult to compete against those guys. Like We can't raise the same amount of capital as them. So it makes it very difficult to compete. But at the same time, again, those companies that are raising huge amounts, they're creating huge liquidation preferences and valuations that, They've got to somehow achieve, and um, I think they're, they're going to come unstuck. So, yeah, that, those are the main ones. It's access to capital. And, you know, brands don't often want to spend money on technology. They It it takes them to hit a ceiling and hit some problems for them to realize how important it is. So you have to catch them at that decision-making process of when they're like, oh, God, we've got some serious problems now. Our site is really slow. We can't internationalize. We can't calculate tax. We can't do this in our PIM. We, you know, all of these different things that you have to catch them at that point for them to realize that they need to invest in the technology. And it might sound like a lot of money sometimes in terms of the licenses for it, but the value that it unlocks is far outweighs the cost. So it's just educating brands that actually they do need to make this investment in the technology and infrastructure in order to succeed. You get businesses and they're doing. 15 million pound a year with one revenue stream which is their checkout of their e-commerce store and they're paying two thousand dollars a month for it and they're putting 15 20 million of revenue through it it's completely disproportionate so once they start after spending tens of thousands on that they're like god that's so expensive like 
that is the entire backbone and infrastructure of your business. That is how you make money. And actually, when you put the correct infrastructure in place, they increase their revenue by 20, 25, 30% overnight. So the cost is massively outweighed by the upside in revenue. Definitely. And you mentioned it before, interestingly enough, that obviously you moved up north and your businesses aren't based in London. I know you kind of flip between the two. But do you think location makes an impact on business success? I rebelled, didn't I? I'm never going to grow a business in London ever again. I think the the UK tech market in London is just crazy. The the salaries being demanded in London, I think the attitude of a lot of employees and the cultures are really bad in London. It's specifically around the development community. It's it's whoever's offering you the most money, and you're getting these big American firms come over to the UK with massive pools of capital. How are UK businesses supposed to compete with those salaries? A friend of mine lost half his development team the other day because an American firm approached his development team and almost doubled their salaries and took a lot of them. He, could, he couldn't compete without salary. So, yeah, and I, I think that there's a, again, I could get on my soapbox about this, but the cost of rent in London is incredibly high for offices. The salaries are incredibly high. The attitude from a lot of employees is incredibly poor. So I wanted to create a business in the North that, was a cool company to work for. I, I, I grew up a lot of my time in Staffordshire. There's just no real cool companies around here, right? They just don't exist. We've got Bet365, which is not too far up the road, which is obviously a class of technology company. But apart from that, there's not much. It's manufacturing and all that type of thing. So I wanted to create a business which was a lot more relaxed and in inverted commas, cool to work for and give people an opportunity to get involved with businesses like this. And I have to say, and I'll probably get criticized for this, the mentality of our employees up here is greater than I've ever seen in any business in London. The loyalty from our employees, the our retention rate's incredibly high. We don't we just don't lose people. We are it's incredibly high. And I think that's a testament to us and the business and the culture that we've created here. Yeah. I think also with like remote working and you know you said covid changed a few things or accelerated changes that were already going to happen i think this whole hybrid remote working as well is going to change the the whole london landscape because yes although offices may still be based in london and they may still be requiring people to go in a certain amount of times a week people can now live outside of london and a bit further and just come in and kind of make it work around their lives so it's not everyone's not going to be as maybe as obsessed with having to be in London as they were previously? Yeah, definitely. I think there was a mass exodus of people leaving London and um, moving out. A lot of our employees here don't live within an hour of the office. They live further north. And most people come in three days a week. That's the, the typical norm, three days a week. And they're quite happy to come in and travel an hour and 15 each way or whatever it may be, an hour each way to, to get to work because it's only three days a week. And then they can have the flexibility of working from home two days a week. So, yeah, I, 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 what I will say is that although remote working is great, there's still a lot to be said about sitting around a table together and getting stuff done. I think that you can still have much greater productivity in person in an office that you can than you can remotely. How important is it for you that you work together as a team? I mean, obviously, you're kind of the, the founder, the entrepreneur, but like working together with the people that you work with and having meetings and being in the office together, how important is that for you to have as a company? We have to have it. We have to have FaceTime. You wouldn't get stuff done at the same rate unless you did. I mean, what I'll say is that 
I'm not a great people manager. Once it gets to a certain size and you get certain levels of employees, that's kind of where I step back and I bring in people who are much better at managing teams and people than I am. Uh, and we've got a great senior leadership team here. So they, they constantly have their, their regimented meetings and sit downs on different subjects. And that's all done in person predominantly and selected days throughout the week when, when those happen. And they're invaluable. We just get so much more done in person than we do over multiple Zooms or Google Meets or whichever one we want to promote. Yeah, definitely. I know we've had a conversation before and I've I've used the word entrepreneur today, but I used the word entrepreneur before and you said that you didn't really like that word. How have you found the entrepreneurial world? And yeah, how would you describe yourself? Do you consider yourself a founder, an entrepreneur, a CEO, a serial entrepreneur? Because obviously there is multiple businesses. Yeah, you've pulled me up on that one, haven't you? I'm not a fan of the word entrepreneur. I think that it's become overly exhausted and it's become too loose. There's a lot of people who class themselves as entrepreneurs. And, you know, what is the definition of an entrepreneur? I don't think too many people would agree on a definition. Like, what is the definition? You know, do you, do you have to have started multiple successful businesses? Do you have to have started a single successful business? Do you have to have even been successful? You know, like, what is the definition of an entrepreneur? I don't know. I mean, what I will say is I was incredibly humbled to be nominated for Entrepreneur of the Year by EY, which for me is the most prestigious of all of them. I don't really like many of these awards. I think they're not great, but the why one for me is the most prestigious. So to be named that is was hugely, you know, humbling and, you know, to have such recognition. But going back to the word, yeah, I don't recognize myself as, I don't refer to myself as an entrepreneur. I never would. What would I call myself? I don't know. I, I, I don't really have a definition for my title. That sounds bad, doesn't it? Um, I just like building technology companies. I like building businesses and, I think that you just have to have an incredible resilience and tenacity and, you know, some people, we've got one person here who says, you've got to be a psychopath to do what you do. (laughs) Like you've got to be mental because you risk everything. You risk all your financial security. You risk all of your freedom and your time and your health and all of these different things in order to succeed. It's, it's crazy, right? But I'd be bored if I didn't, I'd be bored. I tried doing angel investing and advising. I, I was bored and ended up starting Olivia's. Um, so, yeah, I think I, I don't know what I'd call myself is the short answer. I'm not a big fan of the word entrepreneur because I don't think there's a real definition and it gets overly used. And I think the same as the word with CEO. God, like you see all these people on this Instagram culture of people referring to themselves as CEO of a single, they're the only employee of a business and they refer themselves as CEO and they don't even, do anything like there's no real product or service i think that people don't understand that actually chief executive officer is of a board and of a number of directors so unless you have a board and number of directors what can you be the chief executive officer of of an idea <laughs> that's what it seems to be these days <laughs> yeah I, listen i'm not i'm not criticizing people who use it it's, it's up to them but for me it's um i think it's become overly loose and uh, exhausted definitely 
I only asked that because it was an interesting point that I hadn't really heard before. So I wanted I wanted to bring it up. But I mean, no one can really criticize you. I know I've said it multiple times on this in this conversation today. But obviously, you started not one, but at least three businesses, and they've all been very, very successful, which is a massive accomplishment to even start one successful business, because so many people do try and they do fail. And it's, it's not as easy as obviously you've made it look, Nick. So what advice would you have for aspiring founders out there maybe looking to set up an e-commerce maybe to look setting up a business in technology do you have any advice for these budding entrepreneurs i don't know if i'd call it advice i'd ask that they ask themselves a bunch of questions to themselves and before they embark on this journey are they prepared to put everything on the line are they prepared to fully commit and work harder than they've ever worked in their life in order to achieve what they need to achieve are they prepared to get themselves in debt if they need to are they prepared to have sleepless nights are they prepared to really kind of go through that and if the answer is yes then you've got the tenacity you've and all the rest of it to do it then then go ahead if you think that is just too much for you don't put yourself through the hell just don't do it listen some people i'm sure have some lovely stories to tell where there's been no adversity and there's been no ups and downs it's all been ups but it's just not the reality if you look at most successful businesses they've had a traumatic time at some point but airbnb they never got going to for nine years or something daft like there's numbers of businesses i won't talk about names but we're on the verge of bankruptcy multiple times in order to succeed and you imagine what that's like on your personal mental health now, mental health is coming at the forefront of so much these days. And you have really got to risk your mental health to the limits in and be prepared to in order to succeed. So you've got to ask yourself your words there. Yeah, I think that's the main thing is ask yourself those questions. If the answer is yes, and you've really kind of got that hunger in your belly, then go and do it. Because the worst thing you could do is have the regret of being in 10 years time, five years time, whatever it may be, and looking back and wish that you'd done it. And, and not have definitely I've always said it takes a certain type of person to um to start a business and really see it through and have that drive and, and passion to do so it's not everyone can do it not everyone was built to do it and if you're going to fail right and it, it, there's nothing wrong with failing the first time or the second time or the third time if you're going to fail fail quick and move on that's the key thing if you're going to fail fail quick and move on yeah definitely don't do not dwell so finally, my question for you is what is next? What is next both for Moot, but also for Nick? Are we, can we see any more businesses popping up? Or I'm just really excited about what I'm doing at the moment uh, and with Moot and with the brands. Certainly interested in acquiring or growing more brands. So having a number of conversations around that at the minute. But the main thing is, is really focusing on Moot and growing that business. It has huge uh, potential it's already reached incredible valuation and um, size in such a short space of time. So my focus is on that, but certainly interested in investing and acquiring other e-commerce technology companies, supporting those, buying up brands. So yes, definitely acquisitive and looking to acquire technology companies and brands, but ultimately looking to just grow moot and um, focus on that. I was going to say it is incredible what obviously Moot has achieved in such a short space of time. So it's it's definitely going to be one to watch and kind of exciting to see what else you can get up to with Moot and what, what is yet to come. So watch this space, I guess. Keep watching this space. Thank you 
so so much for being our guest today it's been such a pleasure i could sit here and talk to you for hours but um yeah it's already it's already been one of our longest conversations so thank you so much nick it's been a pleasure uh, thank you for having me i appreciate it the serial entrepreneur brought to you by startups magazine a podcast bringing you leading businesses and founders who have a story to tell and explain some of their biggest challenges Try not to be too hard on yourself. Like, I've met so many founders who are like, you know, I should have done this, and then the pandemic happened, and I didn't do this. And, and you spend so much time, like, second-guessing yourself when really mistakes will happen. Like, we're human. It really does improve over time, and I think sometimes when you're starting out, you kind of almost expect yourself to have, you know, super high standards from the start. You know, you want to do your best at the start, absolutely, but you're never going to be perfect. Plus, share their biggest secret their favourite breakfast cereals. My favourite cereal is an Australian cereal called Nutrigrain. Rice Krispies. It's pretty boring. Weetabix. I have a clear winner. It is uh, Cocoa Pops. <laughs>